Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Today, I'm honored to be joined by my friend and Janice Henderson colleague, Sarah DeLagarde. Sarah is a remarkable example of resilience in the face of tragedy. Her life was firing on all cylinders, and then last fall, she experienced a life-changing accident. Initially, she fought for her very life. But very quickly thereafter, she was making peace with the fact that her future was going to be different, and she was looking forward, and she was doing so with incredible optimism. Her story is an amazing one, and I'm privileged to have her join me today to tell it. Sarah, welcome, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for that kind introduction, JR. This is honored to be here. So I hope that I can enlighten you with some of the insights I had since my fall. Your fall. All right. So give the audience a little bit of introduction, just your background and what you were doing for our company before the accident and kind of what happened. I had a long standing career in communications. I think I'm like over 20 years now. And it's something that perhaps at the time I thought happened by accident. I just had a job. My first job was in comms. And so the love for it developed over time. But actually, in hindsight, I look at it and I thought I was always destined to work in comms. It's something that I thoroughly enjoy. It's a high octane, difficult job where you never know what is going to happen on that day. You would come to work with a plan and five minutes later, the whole plan would be upside down and you would have to think on your feet and be creative and finding solutions. And that type of job really, really excites me. And I made it my career. And you were heading communications for our company. And then you had a terrible thing happen to you on the way way home from work one night. That's right. So I was, well, I am global head of comms at Janice Henderson. And last September 2022, I think I was in a very good place work-wise. I was very happy with the work that we had, the agenda that we had. I was very happy in my personal life as well. I had literally just climbed Kilimanjaro in August 2022 with my husband. It was a dream 10 years in the making. It was to celebrate both our 40th birthdays. And we managed successfully to do that. And then one month later, I was at work on a Friday night. I stayed a little bit longer than usual. I was working on a project. I wanted to make sure that everything was that I was sorted and, and dealt with. And I was on my way home and I made the split second decision that waiting for a cab was going to take too long. It was raining. I was, had been waiting for some time. And I, that split second decision was to take the tube. And on my way home, I remember thinking I was quite tired. I had literally just recovered from COVID. And I remember 
allowing myself close my eyes for just two seconds, just the tiny rest. Mm. And I woke up at the end of the line. And I remember being a bit panicked, thinking, oh, this is not supposed to be the place I'm supposed to exit the tube. But I did anyways, looked around, realized it was the wrong station, and realized I had to get back onto the same train to go back into, into London. And that's where there was, I remember water on the platform, I slipped, I tripped, and I crashed into the train carriage. I broke my nose, I broke my front teeth, I had a cut under my chin, and I fell in between the platform and the train onto the railway track, mm. basically. Nobody saw me, and the train departed and took my right arm above the elbow with it. And I remained on the tracks for about 15 minutes, calling out for help, and nobody saw me, nobody heard me. And then the second train came into the station, and I believe that's the one that claimed my leg, although my memory's a bit patchy at that point because I was conscious, but I was slipping in and out of consciousness. So truly life-changing event. A truly life-changing event. And you obviously were bleeding profusely and you almost died before you even were rescued from underneath that second train. Absolutely. I've heard it quite a few times from the paramedics and the trauma doctors who were on call that night. And they said, I am a miracle. I should have died 10 times that night. There were so many different moments that could have gone so terribly wrong. And yet I refused to give up. And as a matter of fact, I remember thinking, I just climbed Kilimanjaro. I am not going to die at a train station in London that hasn't even got a cool name. It's Mm -hmm. not even a central London station. It's way out in zone five. This is not a good way to die. (laughs) I remember feeling really angry about it, saying like, no, 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 no. It's not supposed to happen. I am meant to go home and be with my children, see them, their little faces in my mind's eye. I was like, this is not going to happen. Yeah. So you went by air ambulance to one of the trauma centers in London? Yes. I was very lucky that night. The air ambulance was an on-call to attend someone else. I was lucky that they were still free. And they came over to the site of the accident as soon as possible. They spoke to me. They made sure that I remained conscious and they extracted me from underneath the train. But the beauty of the air ambulance is that they're not just the patient transport. They actually treat people on site, have in their setup, they've got everything they need to attend to a patient who's in a very bad way. And so they were able to put me on the stretcher. They were able to scan my body for injuries. They stopped the bleeding. They gave me strong pain relief and they put the tourniquets on. I didn't bleed out. And then they were able to transport me back to the Royal London Hospital where I went straight into surgery. So this is very late on Friday night at that point. What were you doing on Sunday morning? I remember vaguely what happened on Sunday morning is that I woke up from the second round of surgeries. And the only thought that was in my mind was to think, oh my gosh, on Monday, I won't be able to go to work. I need to ensure a seamless handover. I work in communications, but I'm very used to managing change and managing crises. And I think my brain instantly went into crisis management mode. And I was like, right, if I can't go to work on Monday, I need to ensure a seamless transition to my deputy, so to speak, had to carry out 
And so I called my deputy and told him, right, very matter-of-factly, this is what happened. Got run over by two trains. I'm still alive. Won't be able to make it into work on Monday. Here's the handover for the project that we were working on. Can you please check page two and 14 because there's some outstanding issues to solve. And it was really strange that I went into that mode. There was no panic. There was just a an acceptance of what had happened and an acceptance that I no longer was playing the main role in this comm setup. But for me, it was very much like being in the military mm. where one unit's down, you hand over, and the ultimate goal is for the whole project to still be successful rather than fail because of one person. So I did that, yes. Which for anybody listening or watching is not something that you would normally do when you're facing the kind of life-changing accident that Sarah did. Probably a, a lesson of what not to do. You were very quickly looking forward. Yes. To be honest, that's always been my character is that I I rarely am nostalgic in to the past. Like I don't look back and go, oh, it was so much better in those days. I don't have many regrets in my life. I don't think actually I can think of one apart from making that decision to take the tube that night. But aside from that, I do have a tendency to look forward. I am a a broad thinker. I think very much about a future state. And I love innovation and new developments and thinking creatively about problems, but I don't dwell on the past. And I believe very much so that this is saving me today. Being able to assess the situation and say, right, this is going to be my future state. My limbs aren't going to grow back. So there is no point on dwelling on the past and say, look at pictures of me a year ago with four limbs and feel regretful of it. I'm just like, well, I've got a new set of challenges now. How do I make the most of this and look forward? Obviously, a huge life setback. One of the things that you know, I certainly talk to people about from a career perspective is that you're going to have setbacks. Some will seem serious in the moment, and then you'll look back and say, oh, that really wasn't all that bad. And then there are others will be legitimately bad and they take time to get over, but you've got to learn how to recover from those situations. Now, had you ever faced anything from a career or life perspective remotely resembling what you were facing at that point? Like, How did you learn how to recover from this? I think that every decision that I've made in the past career-wise has always been one of making the best of a bad or good situation. We could label it mistakes, but it's more like I wasn't sure of my direction. I wasn't sure what my calling was. You know, I know this sounds a little bit esoteric, but we're all good at something and we're all passionate about something. But when we grow into adulthood and we grow into our careers, we don't necessarily always see that. There is a lot of influence from our peers, parental expectations that drive us down one road that we think that's the one that I should pursue when in fact everything about your character or the way you deal with a corporate life or that funnels you into a different direction. And for me, I made some wrong turns a couple of times in my career where I thought this is what I meant to be doing when in fact it was completely the wrong environment for me. I was at the early career decisions that I've made, I was put forward for a trader role in an investment bank. 
had the education, I had the languages, it was kind of that I had the sales personality. So on paper, it looked good. But actually, when I started working in that environment, I decided that it was so wrong. And it was, and you know, when you're on the wrong path, you wake up in the morning, and it doesn't feel right. And you feel Mm -hmm. stressed. And there's this tight ball inside your chest and you're like oh no I, I can't face this day but that's your sign that you're on the wrong path and you know I didn't last because I was the wrong person for the job you know we parted ways amicably of course but that was one direction that I tried to pursue that didn't work out yeah and I think learning how to deal with that is something that we all need to do I mean obviously nobody should ever have happened to them what happened to you you were looking forward. One story I remember you telling, I mean, you mentioned that you had broken your tooth when you hit the train after you slipped. And you've mentioned that you were lying in the hospital thinking people are going to come and visit me and I need to look good. And you managed to get a dentist to come visit you in the hospital, which is an amazing feat. I know. I think very efficiently, right? I look at a process and I think that's really slow and that's convoluted and simplification needs to happen. And I remember being in the trauma ward in the Royal London Hospital. And it's not just that I wanted to look good for my visitors, but also it was really painful because the nerves were Mm. exposed. And so I couldn't eat properly. And I remember that at first mentioned it to the doctors. I said, look, I need to have this fixed because it's really painful and it prevents me from eating. And they said, yeah, but you would have to go to the building 15 minutes down the road because they have the dentist and we have no dentist there. And I said, yeah, but I can't get out of bed because I just had these two amputations and I'm not mobile. And I could see that they were thinking about the problem and came back and said, it's impossible. And I said, well, if I can't go to the dentist, is it possible for the dentist to come over here? And they said, yeah, but nobody's ever asked that. Nobody's ever done this before, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Can you just ask? Because it might be possible. And lo and behold, somebody came back and said, oh, yeah, we can totally do that. And so two dentists come over or wait, one one dentist and an an assistant, and they fixed my tooth and I was able to eat. But I think the argument was you are in this trauma ward that you are in a state that you can leave this hospital bed to make room for somebody else who needs it. And my argument was to say, well, if you fix my teeth, then I will be able to eat, I will be able to recover quickly, and then I will be able to leave, bed will be free. And I think that's the moment where they decided, okay, this makes sense. There's a lesson there in helping people to understand what was in it for them, right? In your own way. I know you drew a lot of energy from your husband, from your kids, from your friends during that time. How did that help you? get the energy you needed to accelerate your recovery? I think it had a lot to do because most doctors that I spoke to, and even today, I'm I'm nine months into my recovery. And even today, the doctors that I'm seeing, they still comment on the fact that I am probably 18 months ahead of schedule of their average patient. And they look at me sometimes like it shouldn't be possible. And yet I'm here. And I, I do think a lot about like, what is it that made me recover so quickly? And part of it is probably lucky, perhaps genetics, perhaps the fact that I was physically in good shape because of the climbing of Kilimanjaro before. I think the main part is that I had so much support 
from the people around me. I was very emotional in the two first months specifically because there is such an outpouring of love, everyone around me crying every single day because these incredible messages would come in as to offering help. And and it came from my close family, my extended family, my colleagues at work, absolutely incredible. And this collective community, this collaborative community really, really helped me and helps me to this day to see a positive. Because it's really easy when something so life-changing happens. So in the space of a night, I became severely disabled. So for somebody to be able-bodied who enjoys sports and the outdoors, all of a sudden you're locked in, in a wheelchair, and two limbs are missing, it is hugely traumatizing. Like, let's not underestimate that. And I know I'm smiling and laughing, but that's 80% of me. And there's 20% of me that is really sometimes impacted by this. Yeah. Um, but it is the people around me giving me this psychological safety to be able to express my feelings, to really feel safe that I can, again, reclaim parts of myself. And that's at work as well as at home. And I think it was you made a commitment to your girls that you were going to be home for Christmas. That is true. And that was in October. And I remember having my eight-year-old on the phone and she was in tears. And I asked her, what's the matter? And she said, mommy, I really think that you're going to stay in hospital forever. You're never going to come home. I mean, that really hit me. I thought, it's not just about me. It's about the people who are so close to me, my husband, my two daughters, and they're only eight and 12. For them, it was a huge thing. And I decided right there and then that I was going to come home as soon as possible to be with them, to reassure them that mommy's fine, this really horrible thing happened, but I can bounce back from this and I can be there for them. And I said, and bearing in mind this was October, I said, I'll be home for Christmas. And from that moment onwards, I was in rehab and I was working so hard. I was the first one to go for physio that I was like, yeah, add another weight to this. I need to build my muscles again. And I learned to walk. And it was really hard because walking with a prosthesis is completely different from walking with your two legs. And I was so determined. And actually, I was released on the 2nd of December. So I I had a, a full three weeks to prepare for Christmas. And it was the best Christmas of our entire lives. Yeah, well, certainly life was in a different perspective then. And the fact that you were able to beat your goal by weeks is amazing. You set your sight on getting a very high-tech prosthetic arm and you and your husband started a fundraising effort. How did that play out? Talk a little bit about that. It was a great idea for my husband. And because we were evaluating my options post-surgery, how life without a right arm and a right leg would play out. And we had options on the NHS, our national health system here, and they were good options, but the timeline was very long. In order to qualify for a prosthetic arm, which is called the myoelectric system, which mimics the movement of a normal arm, would take years. You have to first heal for a year, then you would have to try a training arm for a year, and then maybe the third year you would get a myoelectric arm. And I'm slightly impatient. 
to say the least, <laughs> and also a bit stubborn. And so we talked about like what are our options if we go to the private sector. And so we did have a look around. We interviewed, uh, spoke to a few people who had privately funded high-tech bionic arms, and the feedback was really good. It had a very hefty price tag attached to it, but the feedback was good. And my husband said, why don't we do a GoFundMe fundraiser and see what happens? And I remember he set the price at £250,000 because that was what the interviews, you know, what the result of the interviews were. It says, yes, it's quite expensive. And I remember telling my husband, there is no way that we will collect that amount of money. I thought we get £10,000 if we're lucky. <laughs> then we launched it. And the story just snowballed and everybody talked to each other about it. And it became this big thing. And within two and a half weeks, we reached the target and more. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. On the day that I left the rehabilitation clinic, I walked out of the door and I was £250,000 richer, which meant I could afford a bionic arm. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember at the time, I mean, it, as you say, it just took off. And certainly within the company, you know, we have 2,200 people in our company. I think 2,200 people were like constantly refreshing your GoFundMe page because the money was flowing in so quickly. It was just incredible. It was very impressive. And I think that the reason why it was so, it touched people. I, I remember I posted a notification on LinkedIn and it was originally meant to just say, it was a reflection on how life can be cruel. One day you're up here and the next day, right. you know, hitting rock bottom. And, you know, and it was kind of saying a message about we are so much stronger than we think we are. But in a way, it was to tell my smallish network that I was going to be out of service for a few months. And the reaction to that post was so incredible. It took off. It became viral quite quickly. Uh, to a point where people, it was at the weekend and loads of people messaged me on WhatsApp and saying like, have you seen your LinkedIn? And I was like, no, <laughs> I haven't checked. They said, you could go and have a look. It's incredible. And so I went on there and I think today we're like so close to 65,000 reactions, like a thousand shares and then 3,000 comments. And I don't think I've gotten to the bottom of all of the comments <laughs> at some point. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I need to, I need to stop. But it told me that the story struck a nerve and saying bad things happen to good people. And it was such a mundane accident could have happened to any commuter. And then the fact that I have a job and I'm engaged in my communities, but I'm also a mom to two kids. So people felt this incredible injustice and could somehow relate to it. And yet were impressed by the fact that somehow I managed to find strength to survive. It is an amazing story. And Obviously, it, as you said, it went viral. It helped contribute to your fundraising. People from all over the world saw that story. So it was an inspiration to a lot of people. I mean, you had, would you say, 65,000 likes? I mean, that's just the likes, right? Think about all the people who just saw it and didn't react in some way that you can measure. So it's pretty incredible. You came back to work in a limited capacity so far. Talk a little bit about how that's been, kind of where you are and how you're bionic arm training is going? I couldn't stay away from work for too long. I knew that. I love my job. I love the people that I work with. And for me, my worst nightmare was to be alone and not adding value to society or not adding value to the company that I work for. 
that is my worst nightmare. And for me, it was really important for my recovery to ask whether I could come back to work, but not in a full capacity because I had way too much going on personally about the meetings that I had to go to, the clinical appointments I had to go to. We find a happy medium to say I could go to work for two days and then leave three days for medical appointments. It is really to the credit of my manager and the leadership team in my company to have, this is pretty unprecedented. It's not something that happens very often. And yet there was such a degree of understanding and flexibility that I was able to come back after four months of the accident happening. I remember that my doctors and occupational therapists, and they all said that you can't do that. People don't go back to work that soon. You normally take two, three years. Why don't you take that time off and use it to rebuild yourself? And I said, you don't understand, like work is such a big part of me that I knew it when my kids were in floods of tears saying like, does that mean you're never going to work again? (laughs) As if that was the most important thing. And yet I told them, I said, no, 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 I'm okay. Don't worry, I'll go back to work. And that means mom is okay if she can go. (laughs) And so far, I would love to come back in a full-time capacity. I'm just waiting for the final pieces of my rehabilitation to fall into place. And then I would just, yeah, love to come back. You are working on training a version of a bionic arm right now, right? Yes. So I had a first a cosmetic arm, which is, to quote my children, very creepy looking. It looks like an extra device that you would use in a horror movie. It looks like an arm, but it's made of silicon. It even has fingers with fingernails. And it's just, I don't know, I find it unhelpful. It's not necessarily very aesthetic either, but that's the first stage. And you wear it because it gives you balance. It gets your remaining limb used to have something attached to it. And the second iteration of that is what they call a mechanical arm. So that's a little bit more robotic looking. It's got valves and wires and it's body powered. So you shrug your arms and you can make four basic movements, open and close of of a grip. So it's not a hand. It's a hook kind of device and you can bend your elbow, extend and bend. Again, limited functionality. It's more about balance and weight bearing. And then the next step from that is the bionic arm. And that is incredible. It is science fiction come true. It is the future. And I wish I had it here, but it's not ready. (laughs) There's a small piece of the wrist that is missing and it's a a key component and it's lost well it's not lost i hope but it's delayed in transit coming probably caught up in customs someplace it is (laughs) (laughs) but i can tell you like the science behind it is so incredible and bearing in mind that nine months ago i had no idea about prosthetics i had no idea about how it could affect civilians i had a notion of it for soldiers returning from war that they might have a a need for them, but I didn't think about it in the civilian capacity until it happened. But the technology is quite extraordinary. It is quite extraordinary. You've been speaking a lot lately, and you've been talking, and one of the reasons that I wanted to do this was there are some lessons that you've taken away. The fact that you've already thought about that and you know are speaking on that to me is amazing in and of itself. So let me 
let you just sort of talk about some of the things that you've taken away and the lessons that you've learned that you're kind of putting back into all aspects of your life from what happened and how you dealt with it. I spoke to a few audiences since, and I think that's part of my character. Some people deal with trauma slightly differently. So, you know, they keep the trauma to themselves and work through it. And and that's not how I deal with it because I'm this kind of extroverted person who has been conditioned throughout all of my life to storytell. And this is the biggest story that has ever happened to me. Mm. Uh, it felt natural to work through it while I'm talking to people. So the more I tell the story, the less scary it becomes and the more acceptance I have. And I noticed that when I tell the story, people tend to react quite positively to it, that they take something away for themselves. And I love to encourage that. I spoke, I think the scariest talk I've done so far is to speak to, at my daughter's school, I spoke to about 100 pupils from the age of three to 11. And I was so nervous. My daughter was in the audience and I was really worried. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to to shock them. I'm going to traumatize them with my story. And to be honest, I shouldn't have worried because uh, they were on it with the questions. Why did you not bleed out on the tracks? (laughs) Straight in there. (laughs) Because kids have no filter. And at the end, they were just really, really interested in the in the gory details. We've desensitized our children, but that's a topic for another day. Probably, yeah. And then I realized, like, I spoke to clients at work, I spoke at industry events, and the reaction of people was very positive. And the things that I talk about are not necessarily the accident, although there is a bit in there that says, no matter how well prepared you were, how careful you are, life can change within a split second. You make that decision And then it unleashes a series of unfortunate events that lead to this tragedy. But you can't really plan for that. And Mm. if we put that to one side and just focus on what I'm reassured by is the strength that we have. And I talk about it as a hysterical strength. And that is the strength that we display when we are put in a life-threatening situation. And it is about how everything in your body comes together to save you. And there are urban myths out there about the mom who lifts a car single-handedly and then retrieves the toddler from underneath it. And I've heard that story so many times. And now I believe it because I felt it. There is this super strong desire to survive. I felt no pain, although I had two crushed limbs, broken nose and broken teeth, etc. I was severely injured. And yet I felt no pain. And I remember putting myself in the sort of energy saving mode where I Mm. thought I can't panic. I can't waste energy. My sole focus is getting out of here so I can go home to my children. And it affected the way I was breathing. So I slowed down my breathing, slowed down my heartbeat, which meant I didn't bleed out, which meant that I had enough energy for the long run rather than panicking and thrashing about and therefore losing the energy. And so that was one thing that, and I still have it today that now I have a limited number of steps a day that I can go through. And I've got energy batteries for myself, you know, that lasts say 12 hours. And after that, I get tired. So now I'm very intentional about how I use my energy. So I say, do I really need to do this? Or is it a waste of time, a waste of energy? 
which I probably would have not done before. And I think that's quite important to know how to do that because in our day-to-day, we do spend way too much time worrying about things that don't deserve our focus and our energy. I think that's probably the first lesson that I learned straight after the accident is to remember and thinking, oh, okay, that's how I survived is that I went in that energy-saving mode. Other lessons. I'm sure there are others. Yeah. There are so many. Uh, the other one was around how important collaborative communities are. So I mentioned that earlier, but that is about be a nice person because I've always, always had, I'm authentic and I'm nice to everyone, regardless of position or politics or, you know, I'm genuinely a nice person. And I think that played a part in me getting so much support. I'm sure that if I had been a mean person, maybe people wouldn't have reacted like that. I would probably not would have received that as much support. So nurturing your networks and being a nice person with good values, that saves you as well. When you're in trouble, that's when people will show up. It's very true. So what's next? You've talked about wanting to get back maybe to something resembling more full-time, and you've obviously got an arm to train and learn how to use in your daily life. What else is next for you, Sarah? I love the outdoors. You know that. We talked about that at length. Climbing Kilimanjaro was probably the most exciting thing I've done, apart from having children (laughs) and getting married, of course. But it was specifically exciting because... I genuinely did think I was going to make it to the top. And this is true fact that we told friends and family that we were going to climb that mountain together with my husband. And the reaction was always the same that people, my husband's quite tall, he's quite sporty. And people would say, oh, it's going to be so easy for you. You're just going to run up that mountain. It's going to be so exciting. And then they would look at me and say, are you going as well? And I would say, yeah, we're going together. And they would say, are you sure? Because, you know, I don't think you don't strike me as somebody. <laughs> and I started this journey eight days climbing up that mountain. And for me, it was never about getting to the top. Getting to the top was a bonus, but mm-hmm. it was all about enjoying every single moment on that mountain from day one. And I remember getting to the first gate. And I was so excited, high-fived everyone, and the guides looking at me saying like, but there's so many more to go. Why are you celebrating the first one? I said, I'm going to celebrate every single one because I'm not sure if I'm going to make it to the top. And lo and behold, we got to base camp. I was feeling totally fine. I slept like a baby every night, had no real symptoms of altitude issues. And I was like, well... We don't have to go to the top, but we are at base camp, so might as well try it. And my husband was the one who struggled. He's the Mm. one who nearly made it to the top because he was struggling with altitude. And that moment when we got to the crater rim and the sun rose, so incredible for me because it was an affirmation to say, I underestimated my ability, my strength. Others did as well, proved them wrong, but it was more about proving it to myself because I thought I was just not that strong. And I was that strong, turns out. Yeah, you've talked in a couple of different ways about not really knowing what you're capable of, right? You talked about it while you were lying there on the tracks and doing what you needed to do to survive. You've given the abbreviated version of 
your story. I've certainly heard much more of the detail. It was incredible, the things that you did that night to survive. And with your Kilimanjaro climb, you did it without knowing whether you'd make it to the top and you proved that you could. And there are some professional athletes that have made that attempt and haven't been able to make it to the top. Altitude can affect anybody, even the most conditioned among people, but you proved it to yourself, right? And you learn from those situations what you're made of. Yeah. And I know that six months after the accident, we went on our first trip outside of the UK, where we live, and we flew to Portugal and a specific island in Portugal called Madeira. And it's very hilly, say the least. We picked the highest peak there, 1,862 meters. And we decided, let's give it a go. Let's see how many steps I have in me. And I managed to get to the top. It was not that difficult of a walk. It was high up. It was beautiful. But that was my first attempt to recovering a little bit of that passion that I have. And then a couple of weeks later, we were in the UK. We went to the Peak District, a place called Mam Tor, and I managed a four and a half hour hike, 18,000 plus steps, which was huge for me. That was incredible. And I thought, this is great. I am on a trajectory to the top. And then I got knocked down because then all of a sudden, my prosthetic leg didn't fit anymore. There were changes in the shape of my remaining limb. And this is where I had to struggle with the setback because I thought mm-hmm. I was going on a way up, that things were getting better. Right. And all of a sudden I was like, oh no. And then a couple of other things that didn't work out. And I could feel like how hard it was to keep believing in a positive outcome because a setback is hard for anyone, right? You have your expectation, you think you're going in one direction, you're ticking off those boxes, thinking like, yes, I'm doing well. And then all of a sudden, something happens and you're back at square one. And it takes a lot, continue to believe that there is a positive outcome. And that's the last lesson that I take away from this experience is that a positive mindset will help you through anything. It's the belief that there is something better at the end of the story. Yeah, which is incredibly powerful advice. And, you know, it's so easy when you're in one of those situations, you know, you have that kind of setback. You'd had the four and a half hour hike. It's very easy to then believe that that was just fleeting, right? Then you have the problems with, in your case, with your prosthetic and you wonder whether you'll ever get back there again. And, you know, you have to have that faith that you will. And ride out that period when you're having to go through that that setback and getting recast and getting comfortable with the replacement and all of that. So it's a physical, literal metaphor for the idea of how to power through those those tough times. See, and it feels like it's peaks and troughs that I'm seeing, right? And there's something of a powerful metaphor in this is that climbing Kilimanjaro was my highest mountain that I've ever climbed until I hit rock bottom. And then I had an even bigger mountain to climb. And that was battling with myself. Mm. Like, can I get back to where I was? And perhaps not exactly where I was before the accident, but how can I rebuild myself? And that is the biggest mountain. It's beyond Everest. (laughs) Very true. Thank you for doing this. 
appreciate your willingness in general, your candor. You've described a journey that nobody ever would want to go through, but you do it with such grace and poise and optimism. It's, I mean, that's the thing I think that everybody saw in that video that went viral and what all of us who know you have experienced. It's an incredible inspiration. So I hope that people who are listening or watching this particular episode will really take away things that will help them, not just in their careers, but in their lives more generally. And that was why I wanted to do the show, this episode with you. So again, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me along and allowing me to talk about this experience. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Sarah's story is an amazing one. It was a privilege, as I said a little bit ago, to have her on the show to share it. I hope that if you've made it this far and listened all the way to the end or watched all the way to the end, that you took away something that will help you in your life, in your career, in whatever. We'll leave it at that for this episode. Thank you and have a good rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.